are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi, everybody. My name is David Guzik, and I'm so pleased that you could join me today for another one of our Thursday afternoon question and answer sessions. Every Thursday when I'm able to, I get together with you, our YouTube live chat audience, and what we do is we spend some time talking about the Bible, answering questions. Usually I begin with a question that came in by email, or maybe as it was the case today, I begin with a question that came in in a prior week, but I wasn't able to get to it during our hour-long program or maybe it comes in on social media or as a comment to a video or whatever it is. I deal with a lead question first, and then we just open it up to whatever questions you might have, and that might come in on what we call our side chat. And so we welcome your questions. I don't for a moment pretend to have the answer to every Bible question or every question about the Christian life, but I'm happy to share what I might know, and if I don't know the answer, I hope to be honest with you and just tell you either there isn't a biblical answer to it, the Bible doesn't talk about it, or there is an answer perhaps, and I just don't know what it happens to be. So let me begin with our lead question today, welcoming, of course, our TWR360 audience. TWR360 is the Trans World Radio uh, audience that comes to that wonderful website connected with that great ministry of Trans World Radio that for decades has been providing uh, God's Word and excellent teaching and Bible resource via shortwave radio, and now, of course, over their website and all the associated platforms having to do with TWR 360. So welcome to that audience, and welcome to you. It's a great pleasure for me to do this, and one of the reasons why I do this at this particular time of day, 12 noon Pacific time, here I live on the west coast of California, Uh, one of the reasons I do it this is because it makes it a little more accommodating for a European or an African or sometimes uh, even an Asian audience to tune in. Uh, It's the evening in most of those places. So again, I'm very pleased if you could join me today. Welcome, and let me get in now to our lead question for today, having to do with the filling of the Holy Spirit, Old Testament and New Testament. And this is what I mean by that. In a recent uh, question and answer program, we got an email from a man named Bob who asked this. Not an email, actually, it was a, a side chat question. Bob asked this question. He said, when David was anointed with oil to be king and filled with the Holy Spirit, was his filling of the Holy Spirit the same as one becoming a Christian? See, so really what Bob is asking about is, is the work and the filling of the Holy Spirit the same in the Old Testament with David, for example, as it is in the New Testament, as we see the Holy Spirit at work in the ministry of the New Testament. So, Bob, let me tell you my answer to that question. It's going to kind of be the classic um, yes and no answers. Let me explain a little more. First of all, let me give you the yes aspect of that answer. The Holy Spirit is the same. The Holy Spirit doesn't change throughout time. Now, aspects of his work or his ministry may change, but he himself does not change. 
He does not change through the ages or the covenants. And by the way, I use the pronoun he deliberately in reference to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not an it. It's not an object. He is a person. He is the third person of the Godhead. And the reason why I can say that with confidence is that over and over again, the Bible refers to the Holy Spirit not as an it, not as a she, but as a he. Now, we know that God Uh, particularly in his triune nature, is not male or female. He's above male and female. Yet for a particular reason, God wanted to communicate himself to us as a he and not a she. Now, I know that there's a few Bible references that present God in a maternal sense or having maternal qualities, and we're grateful for those, and they tell us something about the nature of God. But overwhelmingly so, God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are presented us presented to us uh, as He in the masculine form. So the Holy Spirit's the same. He doesn't change through the ages or through the covenants. That's one thing to understand. The second thing to understand is this: is that God's way of salvation is the same. It is not that people were saved by works in the Old Testament that people were saved by keeping the law in the Old Testament, uh, nor were they saved just by a uh, genetic association with Abraham. No, uh, it's not as if they're saved one way in the Old Testament and they're saved another way in the New Testament. Again, it's not as if people are saved by works in the Old Testament, but they're saved by the work of Jesus in the New. It's not like they're saved by law in the Old Testament, but they're saved by grace in the New Testament. No, friends, Everyone who has ever been saved has been saved by Jesus and by his grace. So there is obviously a continuity of God's work throughout all ages. Yet, and here's the no part of my answer to you, Bob, there is a difference in the experience of God's salvation between the Old and the New Testament. You see, in the New Testament, We are saved by the work of Jesus at the cross and the empty tomb, looking back to that completed work of Jesus. In the Old Testament, people were also saved by the work of Jesus at the cross and the empty tomb, but looking forward, anticipating the completed work of Jesus. For Old Testament believers, the work had not yet actually been completed. Now, in the New Testament, we are saved and we lived under the new covenant, something that was not true of those who lived before the new covenant was instituted. You see, the new covenant was promised in the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, but it had a definite starting point. Jesus said in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, at the Last Supper, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. You see, the work of Jesus at the cross and at the empty tomb, his death and his resurrection, it put the new covenant into action, into force. There was a time when the new covenant was promised, but not in effect. Then, 
after what Jesus did in his death and his resurrection, the new covenant was in fact in effect. And Jesus told us so again in the scripture I read to you, Luke chapter 22, verse 20. Now, what does this have to do with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Well, friends, understand this, that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon all God's people is a promise relevant to the new covenant. Let me show you here Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. God promises this, again, as part of his new covenant. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Notice these words. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Now, do you see that line in there? I will put my spirit within you. What an amazing promise that is from God that he would put his actual spirit within us. And this is another aspect of the new covenant, this promise of the indwelling Holy Spirit. You see, under the new covenant, the Holy Spirit dwells in every believer. That wasn't true under the old covenant. And the Holy Spirit is promised to fill the believer with his special presence and power. Again, you can find that in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, or in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. So, the Holy Spirit was definitely given under the new covenant in great measure. Now, he was also given under the old covenant, but notice this. In Bob's question, he mentioned King David. He said this. Again, let me read to you Bob's question. He said, when the Holy Spirit was anointed with oil, excuse me, when the Holy Spirit, when David was, I misspoke there, you understand that. When David was anointed with oil to be king and filled with the Holy Spirit, was his filling of the Holy Spirit the same as one becoming a Christian? Well, listen, the Holy Spirit definitely came upon people in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, but only on certain people at certain times, usually for a special purpose. So, a prophet was anointed with the Holy Spirit. A priest was anointed with the Holy Spirit. A king was anointed. They were anointed as special people for a special purpose. Now, under the new covenant, which by the way, the new covenant is in effect because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is our prophet, priest, and king, Friends, we're all special under the new covenant. And it's true that in the Old Testament, there were some people anointed uh, with the Holy Spirit uh, who were not prophets, who were not priests, who were not kings, such as the artisans of the tabernacle that were specially gifted by the Holy Spirit for their work. But again, those were special cases. There was not a general outpouring of the Holy Spirit that we see under the new covenant. You see, that was the whole point of Peter's quoting of Joel chapter 2 in his sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Peter pointed out that they were all filled, in other words, all the disciples. At that time, there was about 120 disciples of Jesus. And Peter said they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, that was a fulfillment of some of the new covenant promises that are found in the prophecies of Joel. It, he promised 
that even the servants and the old people would be filled with God's Spirit. Now, there's a difference in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit under the New Covenant as far as its scope. That's what I just mean. We're all filled with the Holy Spirit, not just certain people. But that's not the only difference. The work of the Holy Spirit as described for believers under the New Covenant is far more glorious. You see, under the New Covenant, uh, by the way, I'm going to put this list in the show notes with the scripture references. This is what we have under the New Covenant, that all believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that their body is actually a temple of the Holy Spirit, that the believer can be continually filled with the Holy Spirit, that the fruit of the Holy Spirit will be on display in their life that the measure of God's giving of the Holy Spirit is abundant under the new covenant, that in the believer's life, there's an outflow of the Holy Spirit as well as an inflow, that the Holy Spirit is always present among true Christians, that the Holy Spirit guides the believer into truth, glorifying Jesus, that the Holy Spirit teaches the believer, the Holy Spirit reminds the believer of the word of God, The Holy Spirit is a witness to our relationship with God, a witness to our status as adopted sons and daughters of God. We see that the Holy Spirit is an abiding helper and advocate, that he's a helper in prayer, that he gives guidance, that he washes and regenerates the believer, that he strengthens the believer, that he gives power to the believer to be a witness. And we also see that the Holy Spirit under the new covenant give supernatural gifts to individuals for the health and the growth of the entire church. So, to answer Bob's question, is there a difference in the way that the Holy Spirit was given under the Old Testament and given under the New Testament? Yes. There are some profound and important ways in which the giving of the Holy Spirit is both broader in scope and greater and more glorious in the new covenant as compared to the old covenant. Now, again, we say this recognizing that there is a measure of continuity of God's work through all generations, yet we cannot deny that there is something new and something glorious about the new covenant itself. So, Bob, thank you for your question. Uh, We couldn't get to it in a prior uh, question and answer session, but you know, I I try to get to the questions the best I can, and now we're going to take a look at our side chat and answer some of the questions that come up there. Here we go. Here's a question that comes from Sebastian. He says, what is the difference between being filled with the Holy Spirit and being baptized in the Holy Spirit? Well, Sebastian, that is a great question. And let me just tell you, I don't know if we can make a hard and fast difference. Let's say this. Jesus spoke about these two different aspects of a person's experience with the Holy Spirit. Being baptized with the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's kind of the question. Is the baptism of the Holy Spirit a once and for all experience in the Christian life? Now, I know that some people would insist that it is because Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, says that there is one baptism. But 
I don't necessarily think that Paul was referring to the baptism of the Holy Spirit in that passage. I I think that context demands that he's referring to the baptism that we would experience by water. Okay, nevertheless, I think it's worthy to debate. It's not entirely clear whether or not the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a one-time event, one and done, so to speak, or if it's an ongoing event in a Christian's life. This is what we do know that when the Bible describes the filling of the Holy Spirit, and I'll refer you to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, where Paul writes, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And knowing the grammar of the original language that Paul wrote in, the sense of that phrase is be constantly being filled with the Holy Spirit. We know that the filling of the Holy Spirit is to be an ongoing experience. Sebastian, let me just give you a very straightforward answer. I don't think that there's a lot of difference between the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. I think that the same experience can be comprehended under both terms. Now, I could go to the scriptures and try to make some fine distinctions, and there's a place for that. Look, sometimes it's worthy to understand the Bible in its smallest detail. But in general, when I'm talking to somebody about the work of the Holy Spirit in their life, Sometimes people are really hung up on the phrase baptism of the Holy Spirit. If that's the case, then I just talked to them about being filled with the Holy Spirit. If people have no familiarity, then something I like about that phrase, baptism of the Holy Spirit, it refers to something of the work that the Holy Spirit wants to do in our life. Because to be baptized into something is to be immersed in that thing. It's like something being totally overwhelmed and immersed, covered over completely. That's what it means to be baptized. That's what the ancient Greek word baptizo simply means. To be overwhelmed, to be covered over, to be immersed in something. And that is the kind of relationship that God wants us to have with his Holy Spirit. If I could beat so forward, not a sprinkling of the Holy Spirit here and there, though sometimes the Holy Spirit's work is talked about it in that phrase, But Jesus definitely promised a baptism in the Holy Spirit for his people. They would be immersed, overflowed with the Holy Spirit. So there's nothing wrong with talking about either the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the filling of the Holy Spirit. But I believe that the same work of the Holy Spirit essentially can be comprehended by either term. Thank you for that question there, Sebastian. Now, let me look at a question by Christine. She asks, I'd like to know why it is that when pastors call up non-believers to be saved, and when they say that they must be filled with the Holy Spirit by speaking in tongues as well. Okay, Christine, you're dealing with a very important issue here. You're talking about the idea that people must prove, so to speak, that they are filled with the Holy Spirit or baptized in the Holy Spirit by the speaking in tongues. Let me tell you, Christine, I think that that is not correct biblically. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. I believe that it's a misunderstanding of the Bible, and if I could say even a dangerous misunderstanding of the Bible, to say that speaking in tongues is the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, those people that believe that, which is, by the way, classic 
Pentecostal theology, it's not universal Pentecostal theology, but it's sort of classic Pentecostal theology, is to believe that the evidence of being filled or baptized with the Holy Spirit is the speaking in tongues. I believe that that is even a dangerous teaching. I'll explain to you why. First of all, let me explain to you why I do not believe that that's to be the case. Although, I don't think people are crazy for following that line. I think it's incorrect and dangerous, even if I could say. But it's not crazy because on at least two occasions in the book of Acts, speaking in tongues was the evidence of being filled or baptized with the Holy Spirit. We find that when the disciples came to Ephesus, we find that on the day of Pentecost. So on two or three occasions in the book of Acts, speaking in tongues was the evidence. But when you take a look at what the New Testament says in its entirety, I think it's wrong to say that it is the evidence. Most pointedly, Paul insisted that not all believers speak in tongues. He just said that in his teaching on the gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and then later on emphasizing the same idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Now, all believers must have the Holy Spirit, at least in some measure. I believe that a believer can open themselves to greater and deeper experiences with the Holy Spirit. But every believer has the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit at all, you're not a believer at all. If someone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to him. So the idea that you prove that you're filled with the Holy Spirit by the speaking in tongues, it's not only wrong, but Christine, I want to tell you, I think it's really misguided, dangerously so, because it makes people seek and fake the gift of tongues in order to prove either to themselves or to the pastor or to the people of the church that they really are filled with the Holy Spirit. Friend, let me tell you, we should not seek the gift of tongues as a merit badge, as something to kind of prove that God really approves of us, that we really are filled with the Holy Spirit. I believe that the New Testament teaches that the gift of tongues is a precious gift that God gives to his people, but it's a gift of communication between the individual and God. It's given to communicate from the individual to God on a vertical level between the believer and God, not on a horizontal level. The gift of tongues is not given to prove anything, either to myself or to the people around me. And when it is sought for that purpose, it always twists things. It always makes things strange. And God doesn't want his gifts of the gifts of the Holy Spirit to be a strange and weird thing. So I guess what I'm saying is this. Uh, Christine, the churches that teach that are teaching something that I don't think is biblical and I think does damage. It does damage because it makes people seek the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit in a way that is works-based and in a way that encourages people to fake the legitimate gifts of the Holy Spirit. So I, I hope that answers that for you, Christine. Just recently, a few days ago, I put up an extended teaching video on the gift of tongues and its relation to edification. Look up my videos from just this prior week, and it'll give you a video with a 
more extensive answer to the idea of how the gift of tongues works among believers, both individually and in God's family today. All right, on to the next question. Uh, N asks a question, does Satan hear our prayers when we pray out loud? Should we pray silently? (laughs) And let me tell you, that's a good question because it prompts the question that says, can Satan read our minds? And the Bible doesn't specifically tell us. Now, I do believe that the Bible gives us principles that help us answer the question. But I don't think it tells us specifically, Satan can read your mind. Satan can't read your mind. And and let me explain to you like this. I believe that the question, can Satan read our thoughts, is answerable by both yes and no. Let me deal with no first. First, I would say Satan cannot read our thoughts because he's not omniscient. Please, friends, Satan is not God. And there are people who pump up Satan to have God-like attributes that he does not have. I suppose there's two extremes that people are always falling into. Sometimes people want to give Satan more power and more credit than he properly has. And other times people want to give Satan less power and less credit than he should properly have. So we don't want to fall into either extreme. Please know, please understand that Satan is not omniscient as God is. Satan does not know everything. And because he's not omniscient, because he's a created being, being, I don't believe that he can actually read my thoughts. However, Satan is, and when I say Satan here, I'm referring to Satan and his agents, so to speak. Uh, I believe that Satan has a vast army of unclean spirits, um, angelic beings that are fallen and that have joined Satan in his rebellion against God. And those are not Satan himself, but they're his agents. So Satan and his agents are brilliant observers of human character and human actions. Therefore, while I do not believe that Satan or his agents can actually read my mind, I believe that they can reliably know what I'm thinking, or at least guess what I'm thinking. I I heard a pastor put it like this once. He said, if my wife can read my mind, so can Satan. Now, listen, we know that our wives or our spouses or people who are close to us, they can't actually see or hear the thoughts inside of our head, but they live with us, they study us, they know us well enough to often be able to accurately predict what we're thinking. In that sense, I think that the devil can sometimes, or his agents, can read our mind. Now, to get back to your prayer, does Satan hear our prayers when we... Well, certainly the devil or his agents can read, can hear us when we speak. Can they read our thoughts? Uh, They can make fairly accurate guesses in many circumstances, not always as to what we're thinking. Now, your question is, should we pray silently? And I want you to know, There is no need for us to pray silently for fear that Satan will hear our prayers. 
I don't know if you're a brother or sister, Anne, but let me just say, brother or sister, pray and don't care if Satan can hear. You are praying to the living God and he is so much greater than any power of darkness. Pray to the living God full of faith and full of confidence and don't worry about what Satan may or may not overhear. That can lead us into an area of suspicion and superstition if we care too much about what we think Satan can or can't hear or know or do. Look, let's just be bold and live our life before God and not worry about what Satan can say or not pray. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying silently when we must do so out of necessity. But in general, I think it's important for us to pray out loud. Praying out loud, I think, makes our prayers better, more focused, and God tells us to do this. Listen, I I don't know the chapter and verse in my mind. It's in one of the minor prophets, Hosea, maybe Micah. But there's a wonderful phrase in the minor prophets where it says this. Bring words with you when you come and appear before God. Bring words, not just thoughts, but words. God wants to hear our words in prayer. Now, can God read our thought prayers? Yes, of course he can but there's something good for us in praying with our voice. Let me give one other encouragement to you. I think more of us, when we read our Bibles, should read them out loud. Now, I'm not trying to make a law for you. I'm just saying that it will benefit you more than you think to actually hear yourself read the Word of God. Uh, Now, of course, it's great to use an audio Bible if you want to do that, but there's something thrilling about reading the Bible out loud and letting yourself hear yourself read the Bible. Did you know that in the ancient world, that's always how they read? In Bible times, normally people read out loud. So when they read the Bible, they would also be hearing the word of God. All right, thank you for that question there. And let me go on to the next question here from Yasuo. Josu says, Should I keep going to a church where my pastor got a divorce and then remarried one year after? Well, Justin, let me just say, from the information you give me in that question, it's impossible to answer because there are pastors who are divorced and they have committed no sin on their part. Now, um, and I say that because, I mean, I know of some pastors in that exact situation. Their wife went off the rails, and there was nothing in their conduct as a husband that caused it or in any significant way contributed to that. Now, I know we want to often jump to the conclusion that if any man is divorced, it must be his fault. And let me just say, often that may be the case. It certainly can't be ignored as a possibility. It has to be looked at very carefully. Now, the other thing you mentioned in your question, you also say the pastor got a divorce and then remarried one year after. Well, again, that's something of concern 
but you would want to know more about the circumstances before you passed a categorical judgment that it was wrong. So I can say, from the information that you give me, I cannot tell you right away that your pastor was wrong for doing that, that he was in sin, that you should not attend that church. That may very well be the case, but a lot more would have to be known. Number one, uh, was the pastor at sin in the divorce? And if so, has he uh, really repented of that sin and been restored in light of that sin? That's number one. And then number two, uh, was there anything ungodly or improper about his new marriage? Uh, the meeting with his new wife, uh, their you know time before marriage, they're getting married. Was there anything inappropriate about that? Many people would automatically think, well, he's divorced. Well, he got married a year later. There must be something inappropriate. Well, perhaps there is. I don't want to automatically say that there wasn't. But neither do we want to automatically say that there was. So that's simply the uh, counsel that I would give you. Certainly, that pastor needs to be truly accountable to some brothers around him whom he respects and will answer to, who can give him counsel and guidance in this. If a pastor has sinned, he should not be in charge of his own restoration. There should be other people, godly and wise, to whom he can submit to and yield to, and he should refuse to take charge over his own restoration to ministry. That's the general principle that I would communicate to you. Okay, let me continue on. A question from LL says, can Christians get tattoos? What does the Bible say about them? Okay, LL, let me answer this question in a bit of a contradictory way. Number one, I'll tell you, the Bible does not say anything about tattoos as they are currently practiced uh, among people today. Or let me say, as they are commonly practiced among people today. Number two, the Bible does mention tattoos. I believe it's in the book of Leviticus. But when it mentions tattoos in the book of Leviticus, by the way, you can go online to my commentary. I have a commentary on the entire Bible, verse by verse, that is available absolutely free of charge at EnduringWord.com. Enduring Word. Uh, there you can find a free Bible commentary. Uh, you can find links to it in English, in Spanish, in Arabic, in Chinese, and we're adding increasingly more languages all the time. So, uh, I speak to that issue in my commentary in Leviticus. By the way, my Bible commentary is also available on Blue Letter Bible. That's blb.org, which is a marvelous Bible resource. In any regard, the tattooing that is spoken of in the book of Leviticus and prohibited by the law of Moses, I don't believe it's the same practice as what is commonly practiced today. The tattooing that was condemned in the Old Testament was tattooing that was done um, as part of pagan rituals honoring the dead. And um, 
meant to appease gods having to do with the dead. God said regarding those pagan burial and funeral customs, no, you should not imitate them. I believe that it's very rare today for people to get tattoos for that same reason. Therefore, I would say that as tattooing is commonly practiced today, uh, I don't believe that the Bible speaks to it, though it does speak to tattooing in the context of ancient paganite, pagan Canaanite customs having to do with rituals for the dead. Okay, now, um, so should a Christian get a tattoo? Well, the, or can a Christian get a tattoo? Listen, I believe that is between them and the Holy Spirit. Uh, I don't mind telling you that uh, our three children, we told them, you can't get a tattoo as long as you're living in our home. Once you move out and get on your own, then if you would like to get a tattoo, that's between you and God. But in our home, no, you're not going to get one. Um, again, that we felt that that was our conscience that we could communicate to our children. Uh, but again, uh, our children have gone on and gotten tattoos to some extent or another. Doesn't bother us at all. That's between them and the Lord. So I hope that answers your question there, LL. Again, look up my commentary specifically on that relevant to the book of Leviticus. Donald asks the question, is it okay to baptize our church neighbors if that neighbor doesn't want to be a part of our congregation? Uh, Donald, let me say that um, the Bible would allow a person to be baptized outside of a congregational connection. But it's not ideal. The Ethiopian eunuch, when he was on his way back from Jerusalem, back to Ethiopia, and when Philip the evangelist said, hey, uh, let's baptize you. He was not baptizing him in connection with a congregation. However, we must say that the Bible indicates to us that one of the meanings, one of the important aspects of baptism is that it does connect us to God's family. And ideally, that's together in a local congregation. Look, ideally, every believer is connected to a local congregation. I know you can be a Christian and not be connected to a local congregation, but we would all agree, I hope, that that's not ideal. Ideal, you, ideally, you have, as a believer, a connection to a real group of believers that you are part of their church family. It could be more formally organized, it could be less formally organized, but we are not just baptized as individuals, we are baptized as, as individuals into the body of Christ. Now, that is not the only significance of baptism, but it certainly is part of the significance of baptism. So I would want to know, with your neighbors, um, is there a reason why they aren't or can't be connected to a church family? Um, so strictly speaking, I think this is permitted, but it's not ideal. Ideally, people are baptized in a sense where there is a real connection to a church family. 
So Donna, I hope that answers for you. You, you would have to know a lot more about the specific circumstances to really know what's best for these individuals regarding not just the event of their baptism, but their ongoing discipleship. Really, that's the thing. We're baptized as disciples of Jesus Christ. We're not just concerned with the act of putting somebody underwater, although that's important. We're also concerned with the ongoing work of discipleship in their life. And as I said before, ideally, that discipleship takes place in connection with the um, work of a local church body organized either formally or sometimes perhaps informally. All right, let me go on to the next question by a TJR who asks this, why did God randomly wrestle Jacob? How did Jacob win that wrestle? And how did Jacob know that it was God? All right, well, you're talking about something back in the book of Genesis. I couldn't tell you exactly which chapter that comes from, but I can speak to it uh, somewhere in the 20s or the 30s, of course, of Genesis. Uh, let me explain to you this, TJR. First of all, God did not randomly wrestle Jacob. We read in the text of Genesis that God initiated the wrestling with Jacob. Listen, there is a sense in which, spiritually speaking, God had been wrestling Jacob his entire life. Jacob, in his life, speaks to us very profoundly of a man who is a believer, yet is not really submitted or surrendered to God. And in that state of really not being submitted or surrendered to God, he was always wrestling with God. Well, there came a day when Jacob, on his way to return back to the promised land, that land that God had promised by covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his descendants, as he was coming back into the promised land, before he was going to have this critical meeting with his uh, disaffected brother Esau, Jacob was there, filled no doubt with fear and anticipation about what was going to happen, and it says that a man wrestled with him. God initiated the wrestling. Why? Because he needed to take Jacob down. It's as if God said to Jacob, uh, you've been resisting me spiritually all your life. Now let's get together physically one-on-one -on -one, and let's see how you can resist me now. And let me tell you, Jacob offered up in that wrestling the best resistance he possibly could. And I would say that Jacob did win but he only won by losing. By the end of the wrestling match, Jacob is hanging on for dear life, and he won't let go of this one who is wrestling with him. And he said, I won't let go of you until you bless me. You see, Jacob really came to an end of himself, and God disabled him, knocking his hip out of joint, which, by the way, must be an incredibly painful injury. Once Jacob came to an end of himself and was completely dependent upon the blessing of God, then, then he won. He won by losing to God. By the way, friend, I'll give you that piece of, of uh, encouragement today. 
The only way you can win when you struggle against God is by losing. The only way you can win is by surrendering to him. And that's what happened with Jacob. Now, so God initiated the wrestling. Jacob won because he got the blessing he wanted, but he only won by losing, by by surrendering himself to God. And then number three, how did Jacob know it was God? We are not told that specifically in the text. We're just told that he named the place Penuel because he knew that he had seen the face of God and lived. What we find out that it was not a mere man wrestling with Jacob in the book of Genesis. Rather, it was God appearing to Jacob in a human form, what we often refer to as a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, sometimes called a Christophany or a theophany, a physical appearance of God in the Old Testament. There's several occasions along those lines which are actually appearances of Jesus Christ before his incarnation. That's who wrestled with Jacob. And we're not told specifically how he knew it was God, but he knew that it was, and he named the place in commemoration with that. Hope that's helpful for you there, T-J-R. Let me go on to the next question by Christine, who asks, how do we know that Paul was given authority by God to write scripture? Okay, well, Christine, that's a great question. Let me give a few ways that we know. Number one, Jesus promised that his apostles would be given authority to speak as authoritative rabbis, so to speak, for the new covenant community, the church that Jesus Christ would establish. I believe that Jesus gave that authority, or at least predicted that he would give that authority to the disciples, to the disciples, to the apostles. When in the Gospels, Jesus said that he would give them the authority to bind and loose. You see, binding and loosing was rabbinic language in that day. And it had to do with being, having, I should say, the authority to determine God's law and to explain God's law to the people. Jesus specifically gave that authority to the apostles. Now, not only to the apostles, but to those who God would declare to be his apostles. And Paul was definitely an apostle, though as he himself admits, he was an apostle called out of due time. In other words, later than all the rest of them. Maybe that's one of the reasons why Paul seems so energetic in his apostolic work He felt like he had to make up for lost time. But here's another way. I could refer you to the passages where Paul very consciously says that what he's communicating is from God, from the Lord. But anybody could say, well, I or you or anybody else could say what I'm communicating is of the Lord. I will refer you to what Peter said about Paul's writings. Peter categorized Paul's writings as being of the rest of the scriptures. Peter said, listen, you know, our brother Paul, he writes some things that are hard to understand, which by the way, is kind of encouraging, isn't it? That sometimes Peter had trouble understanding some of the things that Paul wrote. But he said, even though some of the things he writes are hard to understand, nevertheless, he said, uh, people take those out of context or this as they do the rest of the scriptures. Peter 
clearly categorized the writings of Paul as the rest of the scriptures. And then finally, we have the testimony of the church observing that God has declared that these writings are uh, inspired by God. So we have the prediction of Jesus, the testimony of other apostles such as Peter, and we have the approval of the early Christians saying these writings are scripture. We talk about that as being the formation of the canon, the uh, the books that were recognized by the church as being scriptural. Now, I, I should say that this was a recognition by the church. It was not a creation. They did not create the canon of the New Testament, but they recognized God's inspiration by the Holy Spirit upon them. So those three ways, Kristen, are the ways that I would say, or Christine, I can't say exactly how you would pronounce your name. Uh, those are the ways that I would say specifically that we know that Paul was a given, given authority by God to write scripture. Jesus predicted it, Peter recognized it, and the church approved of it. Okay, uh, Love gives this particular question. Are we committing adultery in marrying a divorcee? Love, let me answer the question very straightforwardly to you. Maybe. If their divorce was not um, given with biblical permission, then I believe you are. If a divorce falls under biblical permission, uh, either for um, sexual immorality, most pointedly adultery, or for the sake of uh, the abandonment by an unbelieving spouse, then God recognizes that divorce and that person is free to remarry. And the person who would marry that remarried person would not be guilty of adultery because the marriage covenant is severed. They are free to remarry. If a divorce is not made on biblical grounds, then I believe that the marriage covenant still is in effect, that God does not recognize the divorce. I think the important question to ask is not, does the state recognize the divorce, but does God recognize the divorce? And like with most things, or let me just say many things in the Christian life, we have people who err greatly on either side. You have some people basically say, uh, no divorce, never, never is remarriage allowed. And I think those people are incorrect. Uh, by the way, I have an extensive video on this subject in my YouTube library. Uh, we will link to it in the description of this video. Uh, if you want more information on that. However, I would just say that uh, people who say a divorcee can never biblically remarry, I think they're wrong. But it's also wrong to say that anything that anybody would call divorce gives a person permission to remarry. I think that's also wrong. So God gives us principles about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and we have to apply those principles biblically and just apply them out as they should be applied. Okay, let me go on to the next question from Rose. 
And I think this will be the last question that we take for today. Man, we've had some wonderful, wonderful questions from our uh, side chat audience. Thank you for tuning in. But I'll deal with this last question here from Rose. Do we pray once for something or do we continue to pray until we receive what we ask for? Rose, I don't believe that there's any one quest answer to that question. And let me explain what I mean by that. I believe that there are times when the Holy Spirit would tell us, hey, pray for it once and that's it. But I believe that for the most part, God would have us pray for things in an ongoing way, in a continuing way. There are people who say that to pray for something more than once is a demonstration of unbelief. Now, that does not have to be the case at all, though conceivably it could be. I mean, I suppose that I could pray for something once, and then I could come back to God and basically pray like this, Oh, Lord, I don't think you heard my prayer at all. I don't think you're a loving God. I think I really have to twist your arm on this, so I'm going to ask you again. Okay, now that kind of praying again for something is a praying of unbelief. But God encourages us to be persistent in prayer, to pray for things again and again. This is a common theme of prayer throughout the Bible. And not only that, we see that Jesus prayed more than once. We know that in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed three times, Father, let this cup pass from me, but if not, uh, my will, but your will be done. We also know that Paul prayed for something on more than one occasion. He prayed at least three times regarding the thorn in his flesh. So the idea of praying more than once doesn't have to be a demonstration of unbelief, but it certainly could be. So what's the solution? Well, pray persistently, but don't pray unbelieving persistently. When you persevere in prayer, don't pray as if God didn't or couldn't or wouldn't hear you the first time. No, instead, continue in prayer, passionate, concerned with God's glory. Now, I say that recognizing this, that there may come a time in a believer's life where God speaks to that believer, and I'm not speaking about speaking with an audible voice, but I just mean simply giving an assurance of the Holy Spirit. Um, you don't need to pray for that any longer. You, you don't need to pray. If God would give a believer a direction or an assurance in the spirit of such a thing, well, then um, who can argue with that? So I don't think that there's an absolute yes or no answer to your question. But I do think that there is a general yes or no answer to the question. I hope that's helpful to you, Rose. And I hope this is helpful for all of you here today. Thank you so much for joining me today on our question and answer program. I want to say thank you to Devin, our moderator, Devin Berryhill. And I also want to just say thank you for everybody who's going to view this at a later time. We're very appreciative of what God is doing and has done in and through this YouTube channel. And we believe that God will continue to do some good things. So if you're looking for Bible resources, go to EnduringWord.com. There you'll find my commentary throughout the entire Bible. Listen, I understand there are some people who they just don't benefit from my Bible resources at all. Well, of course, there's nothing that works for everybody in teaching or commentary or whatever it would be. 
But there's a few people out there who find the Bible resources that I provide to be helpful. And if that's the case with you, I'm so happy to hear it. Best of all, they're available absolutely free. There's no paywall. There's no VIP section. And the reason why they're absolutely free is because we have some very kind donors uh, who just partner with us. And I want to say thank you to all those who partner with us, our donors who just help keep that work going. It is appreciated. And if I can say, uh, I believe God is using your partnership. That's another reason that makes me very grateful for it. So having said that, let me conclude today and say, God willing, and if I live, I'm going to join you next week on Thursday afternoon once again for one of our live question and answers. God bless you, and thank you for joining us today. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.